Well, good morning. I'm going to move forward to you since, you know, we're good Baptist church and everybody likes sitting in the back. Literally, you're all 30 feet away from me. Is this going to mess up the system? Well, if it does, it's all your fault, Jason. So that's how it works, right? I tell you, it is good to be back. I don't know about you, uh, but for me to miss last week for multiple reasons, <laughs> um, it is good to be back with the, with the church family, to be able to worship together again. Um, outside service, beautiful weather, little chilly, better than sun, didn't bring my iPad. I learned, you know, four times a charm, right? Um, so we're so glad that we can come together again as a family to be able to sing praises, to hear the word spoken, to fellowship together, to glorify him, um, to give him the praise. Uh, and so as we study this together, as we look at this passage together, as we continue through 1 Samuel, um, my hope in, that is that our goal in reading this and understanding it by the end is for us, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, a Christian or a non-Christian, that you would consider how you understand and live out God's glory and presence in your life. Let me say that again. How, how do you understand and live out God's glory and God's presence in your life? That's kind of the, the, the question that you, we want to be able to walk away from today, to be able to wrestle with this, to understand what is God's presence, what is God's glory? Because we read these Old Testament um, stories, or what we say are stories, these true historical narratives, and we tend to go, oh, that's nice. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, I would never do that. But in reality, we do. We are not any different than Israel throughout its entire history. Um, and we have to be aware of that. The difference for us today versus them is that we're post-cross. We're post-Christ dying on the cross. And so we look at this and we go, you know, yes, okay, we, we fail just as Israel did, but we have Christ. Now I'm getting to the you know, conclusion of everything, so I'm not going to go too far ahead. Um, but hopefully you've got your Bible with you or you've got your Bible app with you or something because we're going to read through Samuel chapter 4, a piece at a time, a little bit of, a little bit of background because it's been a couple of weeks. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they scorned the Lord's sacrifice and offerings. They took a portion that did not belong to them. It belonged to God. And so they scorned God's, God's sacrifice. They misused the sacrifices of the people for their own advantage, for their own desire. They're very selfish, these priests. They slept with the women serving, at, serving the Lord at the entrance of the tent, which is a pagan practice. <clears throat> and when they were rebuked by their father, they ignored Eli continuing to belittle the Lord and his commands. That's how it's described in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And so God pronounces judgment upon them and upon their father Eli. Hophni and Phinehas will be killed on the same day, <clears throat> and the household of Eli will be removed from the priesthood. Remember, Eli is the high priest. And instead, the priesthood will be given to another God says, who will be faithful to him, doing according to what is in his heart and in his mind, that is God's heart and God's mind. And as we read chapter three, we begin to understand that this new priest 
is Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 opens with a battle between Israel and their enemies, the Philistines. Israel loses the battle, prompting the elders of Israel to ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? And they actually ask the right question, but they come up with the wrong answer. They ask the right question, but they come up with the wrong answer. They attempt to manipulate God for their own good and for their own desire, and it doesn't turn out very well for them. The elders rightly place the Lord as the one who fights for Israel. And that they lost this battle tells them, the elders, that the Lord has placed some sort of judgment on the people. They, they get that. Like some, something's not right. And they rightly understand it. It is the Lord who defeated them, not the Philistines. It was the Lord who defeated them. But then they proceed to apply that truth wrongly. Instead of seeking the Lord and asking him why such a defeat occurred, they make an assumption. And if you know me at all, if my kids were here this morning, they would say that they hear this a thousand times. Assumptions are dangerous things. That's just a good rule in life. Because you make an assumption, you're like, well, I just assumed that, you know, everything was okay. And oh, it's not. Maybe I should have gone into the doctor earlier. Or just something small. Assumptions are dangerous things. And assumptions are dangerous things, especially when it comes to God, especially when it comes to the Lord. So the elders, their assumption was not that some sort of sin of the people or an individual was the cause of the defeat. Now we can think back to when they went into, when Israel went into the land of Canaan, um, and they started the conquest of it, and all of a sudden they were defeated. And what did they do? They started to cast lots. Like, what, what happened? Somebody sinned against the Lord, and it's infected the, uh, affected the entire community. We have lost. Why? Who has sinned? Who has done right before or do, done wrong before God? But in this case, their assumption was, oh, we're all good. There is no sin. But do you know what the problem is? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, the Ark is not with us. We left it over in Shiloh. Oh, we better, you know, we better go grab that. See, the Ark was the throne of God. It was the seat of the presence and the glory of God with his people. That God in the tabernacle and then eventually into the temple that's where God sat and judged his people. His presence came down into the Holy of Holies and came above the Ark of the Covenant. And that's how they knew that God was with them. And so naturally the elders thought, well, if God isn't with us, then let's go get God. And we look back on that today, again, post-cross, and we go, well, that's silly, like God isn't over here. He's only where the Ark of the Covenant is, but that was their mindset. God was not with us today. So we're gonna go fight them again. So we're gonna go get God and bring him over here. And so they did. They grabbed the Ark and they bring it over here. This is 1 Samuel chapter four, 
verses 5 through 9. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. This kind of brings back again the battle of Jericho. The Ark of the Covenant is leading them around the city and then they shout and all of the walls come down and Israel is super excited. Oh yeah, we've got the Ark. We've got God with us. Verse six, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to camp, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Generations later, it's still in everybody's mindset. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Israel thought that they could manipulate God as if the Ark of the Covenant was some sort of magical trinket that would give them the power to defeat the Philistines. Let's go and get God so that he can fight for us. Even the Philistines understood, though it was through a pagan understanding that the ark represented the God who struck down the Egyptians with plagues. The, the Philistines were fearful. The Israelites were elated. But God is not to be manipulated. He's not sort of uh, some sort of genie to pull out of the bottle when needed. Okay, I've heard teachers and pastors say that, like, I view God as a genie, that I just ask him what I need and he gives it to me. That is heresy. That is falsehood. That is using God as a genie in a bottle and putting him in this nice little box that whenever I need him, then I can pull him out and rub the little lamp and say, Jesus, God, give me this because this is what I want. And God goes, your wish is my command. If you know the character of God, it's blasphemous to say something like that. I hope I don't get struck. He's not a genie. He is a God to be feared and reverenced. He is a God to be respected and obeyed. He is not a God to be manipulated. And shockingly, it doesn't work out for Israel. Verses 10 through 22. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. That's to say they were utterly scattered and completely defeated. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. There's your fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. He's mourning. They all know something went wrong. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God, not for his sons. So there is something in Eli. He knows this is dangerous for the ark. 
And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is the uproar? Then the man turned and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, not his sons, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He was overweight, extremely overweight, which points back to also the fact that he was eating the sacrifices his son were taking unlawfully. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured." Israel is defeated with 30,000 men killed in battle, among whom are Eli's sons, the priests. But it's not the loss of life that most worries the people. So there is a little hint of, okay, something's deeper than just the loss of life. The loss of life is horrible, but there's something greater. It's the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most grievous for the people of Israel. To lose the ark is for the glory in the presence of God to be removed from Israel. Eli hears about the loss of the battle, the death of his sons, but it's at the word of the loss of the, at the, loss of the ark that he falls over and breaks his neck. The wife of Phinehas goes into labor at the mention of the death of her husband, her father-in-law, and the capture of the ark, and she names her son Ichabod. Poor kid, holy cow, always reminded his entire life, meaning no glory or where is the glory of the Lord. Communicating the despair of losing the very throne of God to the Philistines. The loss of the glory and the presence of God was devastating to the people of God. God is no longer with them. Israel made the assumption that God will always fight for them because, well, they're his people. They're Israel. They were chosen of all the nations of the world. They were chosen by God to be his people. But this false understanding of God has only led to disaster for the people. They believed they could manipulate God to do as they desired. They believe that the Lord would fight for them simply because they are Israel, whom he brought out of Egypt. But they learned the hard way 
that the Lord is not a God to be manipulated, to be used when it is most convenient for them in order to achieve their own desires. If the elders had applied their question correctly, seeking the Lord as to why they were defeated, then things may have turned out very differently. But as it is, or as it was, their attempted manipulation of the Creator God resulted in the removal of the glory and the presence of God from the midst of the people. I've told this story before. I'm not going to spend too long on details of a football game that I was a part of in high school. Winning or losing the game depended on the very last minute. And I distinctly remember closing my eyes, praying to God, please let my team win. And I opened my eyes and looked across the field, seeing most of the other team doing the same. And in that moment, I realized that I was in a way trying to manipulate God into helping my team win as if God really cared if I won or if I lost. Rather than just trusting that win or lose, that he was still God, glorious beyond compare. I don't even remember the team I was playing. And if I ask anybody in my old hometown, they're going to go, who are you? (laughs) That's just the reality of it. But in the moment, God, if you give me this, then I will do this. God, let us win this game. Honestly, God probably goes, you're just not good enough to win. Sorry. There is a great temptation for us to see God as a genie in a bottle who comes whenever summoned. When times are good, we tend to spend less time with God, seeking his will for our lives less and less, trusting in ourselves to make it through each day. But when the defeats come, when the Philistines attack, when we lose the battle, we naturally ask the question, why, Lord? Why would this happen? And like the elders of Israel, it is at this moment of asking the right question that we must apply that question correctly. Perhaps there is a sin which so easily entangles us as if our sin would not affect our lives in our relationship with God in any way. Perhaps we've neglected our relationship with God. We stop praying or we read the Bible when it's most convenient or we go to church when I'm not tired on Sunday morning. Can I confess something? I'm tired every single Sunday morning. Anybody else say amen to that? I don't know why. It's like 1030 service for crying out loud. It's not like I can't wake up an hour later and still get here on time. But that's the reality of it. And we have to make that choice. Perhaps we've neglected our time with God. Or perhaps as with Job, we've done absolutely nothing wrong. There is no sin. We're reading the Bible. We're spending time in prayer. We're discipling other people. We're going to church. We're going to Bible studies. We're seeking ways to serve God in our everyday life, every single day. We've done all of those things, and God is still causing or allowing difficult defeats in our life. Why? And maybe it's just to bring him the glory and not us. 
Maybe it's to teach us to trust in him a little bit more. To not think that, well, if I just read my Bible this morning, then God will give me a good day. Just as with Israel, well, if we just bring the Ark of the Covenant, then we're going to have a good day. And it was far from a good day. Or let's bring this into eternity, not just the here and now, but eternity future. I've had conversations with people who have stated how they hope that they have done enough to please God in order to be in heaven, as if they're going to stand before God after their death. They're going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and they're going to say, but I did some good things. Like they're, they're going to be their own lawyer, and they're going to try to negotiate with God. Well, you know, God, that's, I mean, now, yeah, I did bad things, but that's a little extreme, isn't it, God? I mean, you're a loving God. Wouldn't you just let me into heaven? I've even heard some people who claim that all people are going to get to heaven even though they despise and reject God while they're living on this earth. As if God can be manipulated in that moment at the judgment seat to allow people into heaven who rejected and hated him and his son, Jesus Christ, their entire life. You know, well, I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to turn away from God. I'm going to disobey God. I'm going to belittle his people. I'm going to belittle his sacrifices. I'm going to belittle him. But when I get to heaven, I'll be able to convince God that I'm good enough to be in his presence for eternity, as if you want to be in his presence for all eternity. If we can't handle his presence for 80 years, how are we going to feel for the rest of eternity? God cannot be manipulated into allowing people into heaven who reject him and his son. Because his son son is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. One cannot manipulate Christ to save for eternity an individual who scorns and rejects him in this life. God cannot and will not be manipulated. But... Beautiful word, right? What do I say? It's one of the most beautiful words and one of the scariest, but it's also one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But that's the reality of life, trying to manipulate God. But the beauty of the gospel message is there is no need to try to attempt to manipulate God because God has already made the way to life and salvation possible. We don't have to convince him to let us in. He gave his son, Jesus of Nazareth, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we could not die, and the death that we deserved. Ichabod, his name was a constant reminder to the people of Israel that their attempted manipulation of God led to the removal of the glory of God in their midst. But then Jesus when he humbled himself and came to this earth, came as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Ichabod means God's glory has departed. Jesus means God is with us. He is in our presence. God in the flesh dwelling amongst humanity. God's glory and his presence was with his people not through a box with angels on it. It's just a box. 
but through Jesus Christ, his son, who is God in the flesh, who came. So if you're an unbeliever, I want you to hear these words. You cannot manipulate God. You have one life to live on this earth in which you will either accept or reject Jesus Christ as Savior, treasure, and Lord. Savior of your sins because our sins come before, between us and God and our relationship with him. The treasure that he is the most important thing. He's the most valuable thing that we have. All these things, including our life of this world, can be taken away from us, but we will never lose what is most valuable to us, which is Jesus Christ. And Lord, which means he's the king of our life. He rules over us. He commands and we obey. We will either accept or reject Jesus Christ as Savior, treasure, and Lord of our life. Christ is the only way to salvation from your sins, the only way to the presence and the glory of God for all eternity. And so will you believe and submit yourself to him? Or will you continue to believe that you can manipulate the creator of the universe into doing what you desire and want. And just hearing that come out of my mouth, doesn't it sound ridiculous? And yet, that's how many believe. That's what many believe. Hoping that they can convince God to accept them after you reject him your entire life. God is not a God to be manipulated he has made the way possible for salvation and everlasting life. Will you believe? And if you are a believer, this is just a good reminder in general, right? Isn't it? But you have to consider how do you understand and live out God's glory and presence in your life? Do we, as God's people, treat God as a genie like the Israelites did? Or do we trust that he will fight our battles for us, giving us the strength to endure and persevere to the end, even in ways we may never completely understand? Are we faithful in obedience, trusting and seeking God's will for our life? That's, that's called sanctification, and it's progressive sanctification, which means it's a battle every single day of your life. You will never stop trying to obey God more and more. And when we fail, that God lifts us up and strengthens us because we want to obey God, not to earn his love, not to earn salvation, not to earn his favor, but because he has already saved us and we love him and we want him to be pleased with us. Do we know people that the Lord, uh, or do we let people know that the Lord is our God or do they see no difference between us and them? If as God's people, if as the true church of God, people look at us and they say, well, you're no different than the, the Satanists who worship Satan down the street. There's no difference between you guys. I mean, you might use different language. If they see no difference between us and the world, that's a problem. Because that means we're not trusting in God. We're just hoping that everything's going to work out in the end. God will take care of it. And when I need him the most, then he'll come to me. But that's not faithfulness 
That's not what it means to be a Christian. As Christians, as Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are the temple of God. What was in the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. And what was over the Ark of the Covenant? The presence of God. We, as his people today, are the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Most High. We tend to forget that. He is with us as his people, never leaving or forsaking us, always guiding us, always encouraging us, always empowering us, always convicting us to live for his glory and for his praise and for his honor. So here's that question. Is this truth being reflected to those around us, to the church family, to neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members who don't know Christ, who are unbelievers? Do we as God's people reflect this truth? God lives in me. I am the temple of God. And if you're a believer, you are the temple of God. We don't have to call for the presence of God to come. He's already there, always, which in one sense is absolutely frightening because I know my own heart, and yet it's absolutely encouraging and gives me peace because I know that he will never leave me, and he is always there. How am I living out the glory and the presence of God in my life? He's there. Do I see it? He's there. Do I live it out? He's there. Do people see that I love God above all things? Because this world will fight and fight and fight against us. Because we are God's people. And we should not lose heart because our God is not a God to be manipulated. He will fight our battles for us. And should this world take our life, we will never have the presence of God away from us. We will be with him forever. That's, that's the ultimate joy for us as God's people. How are we understanding and living out the glory and the presence of God? Are we manipulating God? Do we see God as a genie? Do we need to change our hearts and our mindsets? so that we can understand God correctly and not fall into the trap that Israel did and Eli's sons and Eli himself, but be faithful as Samuel was, knowing and living out the heart and the mind of God. May that be true for us as his people. But Father, I ask that these words in, in your book these words would sink deep into us that we would see what has happened, what, what your people did to try to manipulate you and have you do what they desire. And Father, may we not fall prey to that as your people, but instead, God, to, to look to you always when we see that life is getting us down, when we are facing defeat after defeat after defeat, to humble ourselves before you 
to repent if we need to, but to lean into your presence, to lean into your glory, to trust you no matter what, to not lose heart because you are always with us as your people, Father. We thank you for your, your glory being with us, that we know your son, that you have saved us through the work of your son. And for those, Father, who are not believers, who have rejected you, hoping that everything's gonna work out in the end, Father, may they hear these words, be convicted and believe. Believe that you will save them because you have already done the work through your son. You are not a God to be manipulated. Father, may we not live a life where we strive to make you a genie in our life for you are the creator of the world. May we humble ourselves before you and may you use us in whatever way possible to bring you the glory and the praise and the honor that you rightly deserve. Make us small and make you big. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our closing song?